Hello and welcome back to Gentle Man, redefining manhood in the 21st century. My name is Arjuna. I'm your host. All right, and I'm stoked to have on the show today a good friend of mine, and actually previous podcast co-host of several podcasts. Actually, we recorded two podcasts together, right? Yep. We didn't lose track yet. <laughs> not, not yet. <laughs> yep. Coming on the third podcast we've collaborated on, so... Yeah, that's pretty cool. But yeah, Robin Nelson, really glad to have you on the show today. We've known each other for a long time, and for a large portion of that time, a big hobby that we've shared is gaming. You know, I wanted to bring you on the show because there's a lot of dialogue around men and gaming and video games, how that affects their mental health, and whether it's a good influence, whether it's a time waster. I think there's a lot of hand-wringing around that in certain circles. And in certain individuals, yeah. Let's talk about your history with video games. When did you start playing video games? As a kid, like most people, but I don't think I got my first system until like the fourth grade. All my other friends had had them for years at that point. And so we were kind of, you know, didn't have a lot of means, so it was like special Christmas gift on the list for a couple of years. Got a Super Nintendo and played Donkey Kong Country a lot. <laughs> Classic. Yeah. So that was kind of the gateway gamer time thing. Pretty much been a gamer ever since, except for a couple of patches in my maybe late teens, early 20s. Mm. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, I would say that about mirrors my timeline. I probably got, we didn't have a TV, but my parents got me a Game Boy when I was in third grade. Oh, that was the first system that I owned. I forgot about Game Boy. Actually, I that was my first one, too. <laughs> nice. Yeah. It was like a family Game Boy. Like, we all shared it as brothers. Oh, sweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was fortunate to have it be my designated Game Boy, so I could hoard it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. But of course, you know, I was playing other people's Nintendos before that. We even had a little, like, rudimentary PC gaming going on as well. Wow. We had a computer that didn't have a graphics card, so we were doing ASCII gaming. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And like text-based adventures and stuff. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know about those until my nerdy friends showed them to me when I was in my late 20s or something. <laughs> nice. They were super stoked about them. Yeah. And I had no idea I'd missed it, but yeah, yeah. they're cool. There's a certain hazy nostalgia to it. So, mm-hmm. okay, and then I'm curious, when did you start playing first-person shooters? The first one I can remember playing was probably Doom, right? Like classic, or Wolfenstein maybe even before that. And I can't, because I, yeah, I think I walked into a video store with some friends and they had PCs set up for people to play because they would rent games out too. So you could rent presumably a PC game, but I didn't have a PC back then. So it was more just like go in there and kill time and play this really cool shooter video game that has a bunch of blood and like real looking guns and first time seeing the first person's perspective. So it just felt super state of the art. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that. And then the first one I really played though was probably Unreal Tournament on my buddy's computer. And I would just hang out and do deathmatch against bots and just like get the dopamine hit of doing multi-kills in that versus you know like mediocre bots right mm. but that was the first one i really like connected with and eventually built my own pc with him and got to play it at my own house on my own computer 
yeah, and then we got into like Xbox and Halo, and that kept us busy for quite a while. Even before they had official Xbox Live and like network supports, like you had figured out how to play multiplayer online with the worst ping you can imagine. Literally, it's like one second, two seconds, but it was still so fun playing even like that. Yeah. So again, you know, our timeline is kind of mirrored. Unreal Tournament was one of the first shooters I really got into. And yeah, the replayability of that game was just unbelievable. Mm -hmm. I just want to pause and rewind us again as we're getting into this, because I'm really curious about this, uh, any potential link between video games and violence. Mm -hmm. Do you think of yourself as having been a violent kid or an aggressive kid? That's an interesting question, because I think of myself as a very peaceful adult, but I was actually a pretty violent kid mm. <laughs> in some ways. I didn't go out of my way to try to hurt people, but violence was absolutely a tool that I would look to if there was social conflict. And so me and my twin brother grew up in a rougher neighborhood in central Sioux Falls, just poorer neighborhood. And it was just kind of part of the way you socialized is people would talk shit and then you would talk shit back and stick up for yourself. And it was all about portraying strength and a form of domination. People would try to dominate you and, and put you in your place with name calling and things. And me and my brother were short for our age. It happened a lot. And so we just kind of developed this tough guy, don't fuck with me attitude pretty much right away in kindergarten, maybe even preschool. And our older brother was kind of in that mode too. And he was a big influence on us. I think the first time I punched a kid in the nose was in preschool. <laughs> All right. And our older brother was basically like training us to like be tough and like if people messed with us to stick up for ourselves. So that's what we did. And our friends were super into it too. Like they had the same mentality. It was almost like you looked forward to people instigating something so that you had the opportunity to show them how tough you could be. And that went on throughout grade school, basically. And then we moved and made some new friends and they didn't think it was very cool at all. They thought we were pretty ratchet, you know, mm. we cleaned up really quick after that. Even those friends, it was important to stick up for yourself, but not in the same way that you instantly go to blows. Like you kind of slow down, try to avoid things a little bit more. I don't think we would ever have used the term deescalate, but it just kind of phased out from like fifth to sixth grade. And then it was not cool for me and my peers. I didn't become enlightened by my own accord. I think it was literally just the, the group of people I fell in with rubbed off on me. And I'm actually really grateful for them. That's awesome. You described yourself as a very peaceful adult. And having hung out with both you and your brother, I can say that you both definitely give off that vibe. I don't think I've ever in my years knowing you remember seeing you like escalate even really your, your mood to a more aggressive mood. Mm -hmm. Are you a pacifist? Do you have any kind of philosophy around violence or nonviolence? Mm. I definitely became a pacifist sort of after that period. You know, maybe it was high school, basically. You know, you learn about war and oppression and you just kind of get disgusted by the whole thing. And you, you ask, you know, why can't we just avoid that, right? Like, why can't we all kind of get to the point where we can sit down at a table and agree on some things? And I actually think that is possible, but I don't think everyone is there yet. And so I think as time went on and I saw what could happen if a, a certain group of people wanted to be pacifist and another group of people didn't and wanted to take everything they could from those pacifists, that they probably could do that if those pacifists didn't maintain some sort of means of defending themselves. 
that's kind of where I stand now is let's keep shooting for that. And that's what I shoot for. But also, you know, personally, politically, you know, whatever country I live in, I, I believe it should maintain a military. And I believe that people should take reasonable means to know how to defend themselves. It's a sense of responsibility to myself. It's also a sense of responsibility to my immediate community because not everybody wants to have that responsibility and not everyone has the gumption, the nerve, blah, 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 that if violence is in play to be able to step in and intervene in some way. And maybe it's because of how I grew up, but I actually do have that ability, right, to kind of just see what's happening in a situation and have a drive to do something about it. I also see it as my responsibility to kind of use that and protect people if I can. And so that's kind of where I'm at with it now, like personally. And I don't put that on anyone else at all. I think some people will say people need to learn how to defend themselves and they need to learn how to protect others. There's a lot of patriarchal attitudes around that, like head of household, men need to learn how to defend their families, blah, blah, blah. I don't really care who does it. I think someone in the household should probably think about it. Could be your teenager, it could be the wife, it could be whoever, it could be your neighbor, if that's what it comes to. It depends on where you live. Like some of this stuff is, is not worth the mental overhead and blah, blah, blah of going into and learning about and having to, to think about, which is kind of how I thought about it in my early 20s. I was like, yes, there's threats. Things can happen. But statistically, I still, and I still kind of believe this. Statistically, if you're in the right circles of people, in the right neighborhoods, and you're avoiding the wrong people at the wrong time sort of thing, like situations, you're probably never going to need to use a lot of self-defense, right? And random, random crime does happen, random burglary, stuff like that. But I statistically think it's actually a major threat. But it's those little anecdotal stories that can get people rather riled up. And to some extent, maybe has gotten me riled up and made me want to take that responsibility seriously. I've never been in a fight or altercation as an adult that I can remember. Just little stuff. Certainly been in situations I could have led to that and de-escalated, <laughs> you know, joke her out a little bit. Maybe you verbally stick up for yourself a little bit and just kind of move on, like not worth it. But yeah, that's in a nutshell where I stand in a kind of general sense. Yeah, it sounds to me like you advocate for principled violence. Yeah, definitely. Justifiable violence. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Generally speaking. I was thinking about this just a little bit earlier. What's my drive for that? Because I think when I was a tough guy in grade school, it was a very different drive. I needed to look cool. I needed violence to make me look strong. It was very much a part of my social standing. I think that led me to want conflict, even if I didn't quote unquote start it. I wanted people to start something with me. And I don't feel that way at all anymore, obviously. I don't want people to start shit with me. Because I want to avoid those situations where we either me or them or probably both of us can get very hurt. And so my drive now is more, it's about the indignance of people who want to take things, taking them and hurting people in the process and doing that with some level of immunity or without any sort of barrier. I'd feel like a jackass if someone came in my house and not just did that to me. That's one level of jackassery, but like I'd feel like a dick if someone did that to me and the people I was with and I was just helpless and couldn't do anything. And that's not to say anyone else should feel that way. It's just I put that responsibility on myself. That's something I've done. I don't do that to other people. So in a certain sense, what I'm hearing you say is that you have assumed some amount of the protector role. Mm hmm. And like a very passive, just like if yeah. things come my way, I will on some level at least be mentally ready 
And if the cards are right, I might be able to do something. Will the cards be right? I don't know. Probably not. Who knows, right? Like you never know. So I was planning to get to this later, but I think it's a good time to tie it in now. You're a gun owner, and I know that you enjoy shooting for fun, sport shooting. Yeah, I have. Mm-hmm. It's kind of phased out a little bit recently, but I have some history with it. So yeah, I'm curious, do you see any guns you used to have or any guns that you have at the moment as being a means of self-defense? Or have you... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me about that a little bit more. I mean, I kind of have to go even a little bit before that because. I've been a gamer for a long time, and most of the games I've played in the last 15, 20 years are shooters. And it never occurred to me to own a gun, uh, even though I was playing games with guns in them. It just didn't connect to me. Interesting. At all. Until 2019, I started watching YouTube videos, like Forgotten Weapons, things like that. And I would go into the details about how the weapons work. And I think PUBG, which we had a podcast on, actually made me interested because we got so nerdy about the different ways that the weapons behave. Yeah, I'll just spell that out for people. That's P-U-B-G, Player Unknown's Battlegrounds. Very popular survival shooter game that came out around that time. So we would nerd out about weapon stats in the game, and I think that kind of led me to think about how they behaved in real life, and then I started thinking about, wow, what would it be like to operate them and yada. So it led to me purchasing, eventually, I I think the angle I took was I want to learn how to be a marksman. And so I bought the cheapest thing that would be somewhat effective at that, which was a 22 semi-automatic rifle. And 22, for those of you who don't know, is just a very small caliber. It's the smallest caliber that's commonly used. I'll say that. So shoots a projectile that's about the size of like a rolled up penny really small and it's not a big cartridge with a bunch of powder behind it it shoots right around the speed of sound a little bit over for a standard cartridge comparing that to say like an assault rifle which should shoot about three times as fast don't quote me on that (laughs) maybe it's twice as fast somewhere in there and a slightly larger projectile with that but basically you can go what you call plinking and target shooting with it and with some accuracy out to 100, 150 yards if you're lucky with that sort of rifle. And just for reference, what's the largest animal you think you could reliably kill with one of those things? Your hunters out there would be a well, depends on where you shoot it at, like that <laughs> sort of thing. But it's a small game rifle. Rabbits, birds, squirrels. Yeah. Okay. So, so you started with this 22. Did you ask about self-defense? Yeah, so yeah, have you ever considered using any of your guns in self-defense? I mean, that one, sure, because it was what I had. And it was only, it was less than a year of having it that the pandemic started and political situation and social situations, cultural situations just got a lot more intense in the United States. And there's just a lot of stories of people like me becoming involved in demonstrations like Black Lives Matter and being threatened by typically, you know, a truck full of white dudes with weapons. That spooked me quite a bit. And so I started to look at this hobby I had, which was shoot things far away with this small caliber rifle and think, do I want a different tool in this toolkit that would help me in an urban environment if shit like that went down when I'm with my friends or I'm at a demonstration, yada, yada. 
So yeah, I picked up a pistol, nine millimeter pistol with that in mind, being able to carry it, being able to use it in situations like I actually got a concealed carry permit. I'm not an everyday carry kind of person, but if I know that I'm going into a situation where there's a higher likelihood that I would have to defend myself, I will sometime carry it. I haven't had that feeling in a long time. You know, I supposedly have moved to a city with a lot more crime. Like I was living in Southern Oregon at that time in Ashland and going to Medford. And now I live in the Bay Area, Berkeley. And yeah, there's, you know, a lot of talk about crime down here. And I was actually a little worried about it before I moved, but I haven't felt the least bit nervous really being down here. Maybe a little bit in the first month, but since then, there hasn't been anything to make me feel alarmed. It's mostly theft. There's not random people shooting guns at you. If someone tries to take your stuff, it's a good idea to let them take it. And so for me, it's not like, I'm going to carry a pistol so someone can't take my bike. I don't care. Take the bike. (laughs) I appreciate you talking about that because I do think that for some people there's this fantasy of if I carry my pistol, I'm going to be able to whip it out in a situation like that and show my authority and maybe defend myself. Talk to me a little bit more about why that's not really a scenario that you think about. When I hear a city has crime... If someone says someone a place is dangerous, the first thing I ask to myself, I don't always ask this out loud, is just kind of what kind of crime, like what kind of dangerous, because there can be an area with a lot of crime that isn't really dangerous, meaning there's a lot of theft and there's a lot of burglary. Burglary is a lot scarier, I'll say, than theft, right? Someone coming into your home. And we've actually had people wandering into where I live here because we have poor security, basically. People leave a door unlatched or a jar, things like that. And so, you know, step one, close your doors and windows so you don't end up in a situation where you have to think about that. And then, you know, in terms of crime and danger, the point I'm trying to get to is most people aren't out to just kill random people, right? And so, like, you know, even these mass shootings that are uh, so publicized and granted, statistically, they are more common the odds of you or I becoming involved in one is pretty slim still. And most gun violence in America, which does have a lot of gun violence, America does statistically. It's domestic violence, it's suicide, it's gang-related. Areas with crime and gun culture together have a very high likelihood of that stuff happening. And so you just assess, am I in that situation If so, maybe think about having a weapon in your bedroom or something like that for a kind of nighttime or daytime self-defense situation and figure out how to do it. And then that's in your toolbox. You go through a little while, like you probably like I did, where you you have to really think about it, learn the things, train up, and it's on your mind a lot for a while. It's kind of nerve wracking, to be honest. And then you don't have to think about it as much anymore. And I think a lot of gun advocates would probably argue with me about that. There's a lot of ultra-vigilant individuals out there who want to go out and do shooting once a month and do their target practices and do their drills and routines and things like that. And if sure, if you want to be dead-eyed dick, um, I, I get that. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying that's wrong, but I, I don't think it's worth the cost of maintaining that kind of vigilant mindset and kind of, frankly, kind of fearful mentality that that requires. And maybe that's not fair. You can be practical and kind of take the fear out of it a little bit, but you're still... I found it to be a nuisance to be always thinking about dangerous things, right? Mm. When I was just out and about doing my day, you know, in a freaking department store, going through tactical scenarios in my head all the time. And this is just a nuisance. So it's in the toolbox, it's in the back pocket. I don't have to maintain it in front of mind all the time anymore. Yeah. 
I appreciate you talking about some of the costs of being in that mindset. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, you're right. You know, vigilance and especially hypervigilance is it's a really taxing state to be in. Some would argue that if you're bringing that kind of energy to every situation, you might be more likely to end up kind of instigating or being really quick to respond to any perceived violence as well. Absolutely. I also liked how you were saying, you know, if someone wants to steal my bike, just let them steal my bike kind of a thing. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. You know, I think a lot of people fantasize about what they might do in a situation like that. And I think like nine times out of 10, violence is going to backfire on you in some way. So for example, yeah. if someone's trying to steal your bike and you punch them, you can actually get charged with assault. Even mm -hmm. if you can demonstrate that someone was trying to steal your property. But, you know, if you attack someone, that's considered to be a more serious crime. You know, let alone, yeah, like if someone was trying to steal your bike and, you know, you had a gun and you ended up shooting them, that's putting you so in an incredible it. amount of hot water. Yeah, right? good luck with that one. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, all right, like getting into this stuff, you really got to do your homework on self-defense law. And it's different state by state. It, it varies dramatically. Right. So I haven't actually done my homework much for Cali, but I'm definitely staying on the conservative side. But it's the same thing in Oregon, right, where there might have been a little bit more leeway for someone to defend themselves, quote, defend themselves. But, you know, it's funny. I, you say it's like, I think you said mature to feel that way. And I agree. I think it is mature. But when I think back to times when people have actually stolen something from me, I get pretty mad. Mm. <laughs> I don't think I, would, I was mad enough to shoot them. But I, I do think it's one of those things where I hope I have the self-control to not react and that's why you rehearse these things, right? Like in your mind, like, okay, what's the appropriate thing to do in these different situations? Yeah, I think it's good to acknowledge reactivity. Rehearsal is really good, right? Because mm -hmm. I do think that there are people who rehearse the doing of the violence, but they don't rehearse the restraint of the violence. And then... Yeah, bingo. Yeah. They might end up mm -hmm. just totally overreacting. Mm -hmm. Which I think is a big problem with the police force that a lot of people have pointed out in the last three or four years is police are trained to do the brutal, take control, power seizing situation, right? Like tase them, shoot them, get them on the ground, like subdue, right? At all cost, once something gets a little hairy even. And so having those de-escalation tactics in the toolkit can go a long way if you're also rehearsing them and thinking about them. And I hope that is happening more. But not to say that all police departments are just like brutal and want to shoot everybody, but certainly has been the case in some situations. I wanted to bring it back to the video games because I am very, very interested in the connection there. I'm interested to hear you talk about, so do you think that if you hadn't played PUBG or maybe like another really kind of technical, tactical shooter, do you think there's a chance you wouldn't have gotten into gun ownership? <sighs> yeah, I mean, based on the narrative I just put out there, right, it was kind of a A then B then C meaning, you know, gaming to kind of gun curiosity to getting guns for a purely impersonal hobby, right? Meaning like not defense-minded. 
and then making that leap later of, well, maybe this is a tool I need to expand on, you know, for defense situations. I don't know. I don't know. I do know like the, the attitudes that are kind of core to me of having responsibility to defend myself and doing something if I can. Those are core enough that it's plausible to me that I would have gotten there anyway with the, the right stimulus, which in this case would have been, you know, like 2020 pandemic, fury culture, blah, blah, blah stuff. It's plausible to me that it still would have happened. I think it might have taken longer because I didn't have that kind of priming that I had of opening my mind to guns being intriguing that happened during the, oh, guns are fascinating. I want to learn more about them, but I don't want to own them. It was kind of this like, it's okay for me to watch YouTube gun channels for a couple hours a day because I don't own guns and I'm not interested in owning guns. And it was kind of this it didn't alarm me at all. And it didn't, I didn't feel like I had to explain it to myself. Right. Cause I, I don't think I was ready to be a gun owner in 2018. Not that it like, I wasn't opposed to it at that point, but there were periods earlier in my life where I was more or less opposed to myself owning a gun and ju or just gun ownership in general. Right. I just kind of saw it as unnecessary. And so it did take a little while, like a few stages to kind of get there. So after you started playing shooters and more violent video games, and perhaps after that became one of your preferred genres, I'd be interested to hear your meditation on how do you think that that affected your psyche and your general ideas about violence? Yeah. It's a broad question, but I'm just curious to hear your meditations on it. Mm-hmm. It's funny because like, the first implied question I hear from that is... Did it make me imagine real world violence more and doing real world violence to people? And to me, it never had any connection to doing actual violence. I find actual violence to be abhorrent and disgusting. I still have dreams. Like if I'm in a gaming mode playing more games, then I frequently will have a dream where I'm playing the game. You know, I'm in a combat situation and it's kind of fun because I'm in a game and I, you know, someone's shooting at me. So I'm like, oh, take over, blah, blah, blah. Okay, I'm going to shoot back. And, you know, sometimes you can't do anything you want to dream. So you just, your gun doesn't work. You can't shoot, blah, blah, blah. Sometimes you can. In those cases, when I shoot back and I think I've landed a shot, I'm really excited because I'm playing this game and I just was successful and I, I hit the opponent and I won that battle. And then a split second later, I'm terrified because you know how dreams are and you're in one context and then suddenly the context flips and the narrative you thought you were in isn't the narrative. And in this case, it's, wait, this isn't a game. That's my friend or that's like a real person that I just shot at. And it's just like complete terror that I feel and shame and like confusion. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that the action that I do in video games, right? Like anyone who looks at it and from the outside, it looks like people having fun killing each other. But when you're actually playing it, it's reaction speed, it's pointing and clicking, and it's highly competitive. It's do or die survival. And it's very engaging. And so about a year, year and a half ago, I got diagnosed with ADHD. And I've started to understand a little bit more about why things like shooters are so compelling to me. To me, it has very little to do with violence and it has everything to do with real time, head to head, challenging situations that demand my attention more than almost any other thing that I do in life. And so it's about this sort of like immersive activity that demands every little neuron that I can muster in order to succeed. And that feeling of being fully engaged, that's the high for me. And actually, I think I could probably get that high in a video game that doesn't even involve other people. 
and subduing other people. And there is still like in the competition, there's kind of a dominance element, right? So you want to be better than the other guy. And it feels really good when you are, right? And it's really disappointing when you aren't. I think that there's an aspect of that, but I actually think I might enjoy it just as much if the AI was good and if the AI was compelling and there wouldn't even be an interpersonal component to it. But they are different. My point is, is to show that it's not necessarily a sort of interpersonal dominance thing. It's a lot more about the the form and level of engagement. And literally my adrenaline, like, you know how PUBG is. Some of these shooters, they get you really worked up. It's just a state of engagement and excitement that it's fun. <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting because I, I, I take your point about it's not necessarily the killing or it's not necessarily the dominating another human that is the compelling aspect. But I, I want to push back on it a little bit or, or make a point that's somewhat counter in that I would argue that one of the reasons a game like PUBG is so exciting is precisely because it's very realistic. Mm-hmm. I remember playing that game and it really got me, it got my amygdala pumping in a way that no other video game has. And I think part of it was the realism. So I want to tease into that a little bit. Why is it so compelling that it be very realistic? And I guess kind of a corollary question is, how do we feel about that delta? The fact that it's more exciting if it's realistic. And why is it exciting? And, and what, is that, what is that doing to us? Mm-hmm. So a couple of things in there. Realism in a first-person shooter consists of a couple different things, right? So there's the graphics quality slash like the, the style of the graphics. So is it cartoony? Is it bright, washed out? Like Halo is a sci-fi game and it feels like a sci-fi game. There's humans in it, but Master Chief is more or less a robot. And there's a bunch of aliens that look nothing like people and act nothing like people. And then there's more realistic styles of people and blood and gore and dismemberment and stuff like that. I don't find realistic gore or anything like that particularly compelling. I do find realistic ballistics, meaning like how guns behave, how how projectiles behave, very interesting. And you can go really nerdy about it, right? Most games don't introduce wind to a game that can affect the travel of a bullet. But I find that super compelling that if you shoot a bullet and it's breezy, it might get pushed a little bit more this second than a second after, depending on some gust. At a certain level, we're talking about simulation. And can we simulate things in a way that's interesting, like reality is interesting? And then I guess the other element of realism is just like, is it real guns or are the guns meant to model guns that you can go out and buy at the store or stuff like that, which I also find very interesting. Having gone through a gun nerd phase, I find that compelling. I'd much rather play a game with a real gun than a bunch of made up sci-fi guns because it's connected to the real world. But I feel the same way about a game that is going to have some element of alchemy. If you're going to be able to mix up potions or do some chemistry or some kind of crafting, I would much rather that crafting reflect the properties of real substances, right? And their actual chemical properties in the world. You're getting at immersion, right? That's that's what you're talking about. It's more immersive and that immersion is exciting. Yeah. Yeah. But like the gore, it feels gritty. PUBG is not very gory. I guess you see a blood splatter when you hit someone, but it's more of a meant for game feedback to give you an affirmation if you landed a shot or not. Some games go a little heavier. I wanted to observe that there was a period, it was kind of in the late 90s through the mid aughts, 
where people were really pushing the envelope on how violent video games were. There was this one game in particular I remember called Soldier of Fortune. It probably came out in like 99 or 2000. And it was almost fetishistic in its depiction of gun violence, right? So you could mm-hmm. you could like blow a hole through the middle of someone's face and have that be depicted in the game. And that was seen as a virtue of the game. I'm not deep into video games anymore, but I don't really see that anymore. I can't remember the last time I saw a video game that had that level of violence in it. It seems like most development studios are taking a middle ground, which is like you said, you know, you might see some blood, you might see someone kind of have a visual feedback to getting hit, whether it's with a sword or a bullet. But it seems like they've erred on the side of toning it down in recent years, um, which I think is... Because I don't think most people are into that. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I think when you're 12 or 13, it's like, whoa, you know, your eyes bulge out of your head when you first see that kind of stuff. And then you're uh, eh, the wow factor, you know. Yeah, I think there was... There was also the outrage factor, right? I think yes, so. Absolutely. I think some gaming studios, like Grand Theft Auto comes to mind. Some gaming studios identified that outrage was a way of attracting attention to that game. In much the same way, you know, there's a lot of kind of uh, social media provocateurs who do the same thing, right? They just, they say ridiculous stuff to, yeah, exactly, make people's eyes bulge out to get views. So games such as Grand Theft Auto really leverage this to grow their player base. And I would say successfully, the idea that you could drive around a big city and beat up cops and pick up strippers and kill strippers and stuff, you know, that was just so, it was so shocking. And I think it really enrolled a whole generation of gamers because of it. It seems to me like the hunger for that has really waned. And I don't know, who knows what the future holds, but I don't see it coming back anytime soon. I think what's interesting about that example, Grand Theft Auto, because I was kind of famous for that, right? It's like, oh, you can go, you can run people over and you can beat up random people and you can like, you can go buy a hooker and your van will rock around. And I think what's cool about it is when you first play it, you kind of test it out. You're like, oh, can I actually do all that? And you're like, oh yeah, I can. And then it's like, it's not actually that fun. Right? Like once you do it, it's more that that type of game is what they call a sandbox game where it's open world. You can kind of do whatever you want. And it's not so much about, oh, I can go do bad stuff. It's like, you can also do bad stuff. You can do whatever you, you can do anything. I think that's the selling point. It's not that you can go, you know, be immoral, but that you can experiment with that and nobody gets hurt. And you can also play around in countless other ways, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Without people being hurt. And that's speaking from my own, maybe some people just always were beating up hookers in that game. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think that was the selling point, you know? I also remember having an experience of, like, I'll go back to Half-Life, for example. That game, it was one of the first shooters, I would say, that featured people that behaved a bit more realistically and a bit more realistically when you shot at them. So, for example, the game had these scientists in it who, they were kind of a running gag. They had goofy voices. They were kind of a caricature of, like, your nerdy movie scientists. And if you sh- if you shot them, they would actually yelp and kind of, you know, run away. And, you know, it was, it was an approximation of what a real person would do if you shot them. And I remember being a, a 13-year-old. And when I first played the game, I was really amused by that. I remembered having fun shooting these innocent scientists and kind of cackling and, I don't know, thinking I was clever and thinking the game was cool for letting you do that. 
And I remember over time, I started to feel really bad about it. Mm -hmm. And I remember my conscience kicking in and there was some part of me that would feel like, man, you're being a monster right now. So it was really, a, it was a meditation for me about how even simulated violence against a virtual human could feel damaging to me, especially an innocent virtual human. And I didn't want to keep doing it. So I'm curious if you've had any moments like that yourself where you feel remorse for having inflicted violence in a video game. I don't remember ever having that feeling, to be honest with you. Oh, except... Well, in competitive games, I definitely feel that way. Because some games, there's this interesting mechanic where when you best another player, they don't just instantly die. They will go into this kind of in-between state, usually called like knocked down or knocked out. And they're basically incapacitated mostly. Like they can no longer shoot back and they're crawling around on the floor. And in that case, you have the decision to make of, okay, do I show mercy and let this person crawl around and, and maybe their teammates will best me and they'll save them? Or do I just take this person out of the game because they still pose a threat in the sense of feeding information to their very still dangerous teammates? And so I like that. That's an interesting moral conundrum. And most gamers just do what they call thirsting, which is you just kill them <laughs> instantly if you can. As long as it doesn't put you at risk to focus on them, you know, people will usually take them out. But no, that's a case where it's not a moral thing. It's more of a social gentlemanly thing to me to do. If you've been enjoying the Gentleman Podcast, I'd like to ask you for your help. Growing a community and an online presence takes a lot of participation from listeners such as yourself to really help things take off. If you value this show and it has been meaningful in your life, help me out by doing one of the following. Leaving me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen. Recommending it via word of mouth to your friends and family is another massive way that you can help this podcast grow. Following on social media and liking the content, Gentleman Podcast is our Instagram handle. You can also find us on YouTube at Gentleman Podcast, three words. I really appreciate your help and your support. It's one of the things that will help me to keep making this content and to keep making it better as well. Thank you. It seems like your relationship with real world violence was actually diminishing around the same time that your relationship with simulated violence was increasing. And while that may be kind of a coincidence, it's more based on, it sounds like it was more based on the social norms of who you're hanging out with than necessarily any correlation with playing video games, for example. But I'm curious to hear if you feel like the video games have ended up having any effect on your real life aggression either way? I don't think so. I don't see an immediate personal inner monologue connection. I got more into video games as, as time went on, basically, right? So I kind of stopped getting in fights more or less in the fourth, fifth grade, and then was gaming more and more through the middle school years and stuff. But in middle school, we actually, I played a huge variety of games back then. And it kind of solidified into shooters more like end of high school, college years kind of stuff. And so it was, you know, racing games and lots of Gran Turismo, Need for Speed. I don't know, just different stuff. So it wasn't wasn't all just, you know, first person shooters all the time. But yeah, I still don't. It's just not in my mind connected to violence. Video game, there's there's no connection to me personally between what I do in video games and 
and what I think about in real life. So when I th- and when I think about video game violence, it's it's video game violence, right? I might think about how to be better at the game, which ultimately means, you know, sometimes means shooting people better, killing people better. It doesn't even feel violent. I don't know mm-hmm. how to how else to put that, mm-hmm. but it, it feels like getting better at a game. Mm-hmm. So yeah, my, my observation has mm-hmm. also been: I actually feel like there's a correlation that I've seen between what I would call hardcore gamers and nonviolence. So Mm -hmm. the people that I know who spend the most time playing video games tend to be some of the least aggressive people I've ever met. And I I think that there's a high correlation between what I would call like introverted behavior and heavy video game playing. It's anecdotal. and And I also think the statistics around stuff like this are changing all the time because the segment of society that is occupied by video gamers is ever-changing, right? The demographics of who is a gamer are ever-changing. Video games are having such a wide adoption among the successive generations. When you and I were growing up, while video game playing was quite common, the archetype of the hardcore gamer was a bit more specialized. These days, you know, you still have hardcore gamers, but I think the lines are blurred a lot more than they used to be. Yeah, I mean, and let's be real, too, about gaming culture and stuff, too, where uh, if I was an outsider and went and watched someone like myself play video games and listen to online chat and things like that, I would, you know, rightfully in some ways think that is a pretty gross and toxic place to be where people really aren't exercising their best virtues. Most of the time I don't play with chat on because, you know, there's a lot of people who might not even be that disgusting in real life, but they'll do they'll say a lot of disgusting things online. Right. And in the context of a game. And I could see how gamers get a bad rap and how it seems like they are probably hyper violent, aggressive people (laughs) because gaming culture is kind of gross. I don't mean to throw it completely under the bus because I think it's one of those situations where the loudest individuals are doing those things. And there's a lot of people who aren't right, who are silent or just, you know, they just there's no point in challenging these people. You just mute them and move on with your life. Because they're just looking for someone to listen, right? And to acknowledge how absurd and outrageous they're being. That's all they want. They just want attention. Most gamers are decent people, right? And you get this kind of loud bunch that likes to act up and (laughs) give us a bad name. But Yeah, there's a lot of gamers that really hate those people too. Yeah. Yeah. You don't experience it that much, right? Like I don't honestly. And I notice watching other friends struggle with playing games because they'll jump on and we let's say we play for four hours and there's a one guy who just was a complete asshole, right? And just said really in- insulting, uh, inflammatory things. And when you walk away from that gaming session, you don't remember the 70 other people you interacted with or more, right? Like the hundreds probably, right? If you're playing the right game, you interact with a lot of people or you have the opportunity to, that'll get under your skin. And then you characterize gamers as being like that, just because that's how human consciousness works, right? Is you latch onto that threatening thing that spiked your nervous system response. And then that becomes your memory and characterization of what that is and who, what the people are like there. Yeah, I, I appreciate you voicing that. It is a large conversation onto itself around, you know, what culture is perpetuated in video gaming circles. And I think like you highlighted before, it is often subjected to a shallow level of scrutiny that that suggests Mm -hmm. something very different than you would come away with if you really got deeper into it. Some gaming communities are much more toxic than others. And Mm -hmm. it's a combination of how the developers treat their community and who the game attracts. And it's just like any other culture. 
I want to reflect on my own experiences a little bit. In a lot of ways, my answer mirrors yours. I have not detected any link between wanting to commit real life violence and playing video game violence. It's actually interesting that my tolerance for televised violence has gone way down in the last decade. Whereas even though I don't play that many violent video games these days, I don't think it's really about the violence. It's more about the nervous system response to playing highly competitive games has really started to stress me out. That more than anything, like for example, one of my favorite games, Magic the Gathering, it's a game with some violent themes, but the way that the game, it's a card game. And so it's actually, as far as video games go, it's uh, very slow paced and there's not that much actual violence happening on the screen. But I still had to stop playing it because it was putting me into this like hyper competitive mode that had other negative consequences in my life. So it's interesting for me to reflect on how I think I would feel more comfortable at this point perpetrating simulated violence in a video game than I would, for example, watching Game of Thrones, which I find to be the violence that's depicted in that show is really too much for me. Wait, you'd have an easier time playing a violent video game than what? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think part of that is that for me, a pixelated polygonal person running around on a screen uh, is very different than like a real actor, mm-hmm. very convincingly depicted being disemboweled or something. And so I find it a lot easier to assimilate and tolerate video game violence. I think in many ways, like you, like you stated, because it's, um, it's a little bit goofy, actually, in a lot of the games, and it's not actually very realistic. Yeah, I've noticed that pattern in other people as well, and sometimes in myself, that male friends about my age have also become more sensitive and, and less tolerant of violent depictions in film and TV, end up avoiding it, like if they think something's going to be... I don't want to say gratuitous is like a value judgment, but if it's going to be gritty and graphic, then it's just kind of not worth it because it gets you, I don't know, there's something about violence when you're young that is kind of glamorous. It seems really inconsequential and you grapple on it is kind of shallow, basically. As you get older, you could just say emotional, but it just feels so much more real and it's a lot more palpable. You've gone through a lot more suffering yourself. We all have when we get older and people get hurt and it is less palatable. And it's something I also am like a lot more conscientious about when I expose myself to it. Cause yeah, it's not always worth it. Trigger fight or flight response for a Netflix and chill sesh. Cause you don't have anything else to do or whatever. Isn't that interesting though, that we're both, we both have a much higher tolerance for video game violence than we do for televised violence. It's a lot less personal, I think video game violence and actors are very good at what they do right and scenes are designed to elicit that response so that you think about them and you want to come back and watch the next episode to recount an experience I had when I was in high school. I had a philosophy teacher who also happened to be the film teacher at my school, and I was in both classes. 
in the film class, I had to spend a lot of extracurricular time editing my projects because I didn't have a computer at home to edit film on. Anyway, one day I was in the computer lab editing and a friend of mine was playing Doom on the computer. I had no idea that we had Doom on the computers at school. And I was like, this is some retro fun. I'll get into it. So I start playing this game and I'm having fun and, you know, I'm kind of cackling and shooting demons and stuff. And I remember this philosophy teacher walks over and he looks at me and he says, wow, Arjuna, I'm really surprised. I didn't peg you as the kind of person <laughs> who would play these violent video games, right? Because in his philosophy class, I was sensitive and artsy and philosophical and very nonviolent. You know, I, I consider myself to be a pacifist. There are very few situations in which I feel that violence is justified. And so for him, it was such an incongruous moment. Does that make you a pacifist, by the way? I want to go to that, but yeah, continue yeah, your story. It's, it's an interesting yeah. question, right? Yeah. So I remember this look of concern and confusion on his face. And in the moment, I thought, there is no contradiction here. Knowing myself and knowing what this game meant to me, and knowing how I felt about it, there was no part of me that questioned whether I was in integrity with my beliefs. There was something about going into hell and shooting demons with big, ridiculous guns. <laughs> it, was, it was kind of so absurd to me that it didn't even cross my mind that that could reflect on my real-life propensity for violence. Mm -hmm. Wasn't that on Mars? You were on Mars. And oh, is that what it was? The demons came from hell. Okay. Just needed to clarify <laughs> okay. the record. Maybe, on that maybe one. it was Doom 2 where you actually go down to hell. Maybe, yeah. yeah. Actually, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Important correction there. But as time has gone on, it's not that I wonder if violent video games have had any effects on my propensity for violence in my adulthood. Because, like I said, I've seen no correlation there. I have seen a correlation between competition and anger and aggression. So for example, I noticed when I was playing a lot of Magic specifically, and I felt like I'd unfairly lost a game, or I felt like the odds had really gone against me, that's when I noticed myself getting the most ragey. Mm -hmm. That's when I noticed myself slamming my fist down on the desk. Absolutely. Pushing my mouse away. Mm -hmm. And so again, I think it's, it's kind of like you were talking about where the interaction, the competition the imperative to succeed was really the thing that was triggering that feeling of aggression for me. So, you know, I think it's telling that a card game could do that to me in a way that a shooter didn't. I still get frustrated playing shooters, but it was not nearly to the extent that I would playing Magic. And that's because I was much more invested in being good at Magic. And so adults might have a lot of hand-wringing over aggression and, and video games with children, and they might overlook aggression in sports, for example. <laughs> exactly. I remember when I was in school, the kids that I was scared of were the really competitive athletes, because they're the ones that I felt most at threat from. Like the other nerdy kids who's- Physically. Physically. Yeah. yeah. The other nerdy kids who played video games, I, you know, I didn't think twice about them. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't know I was ever scared of any of those kids. Mm-hmm. So that's really what came up for me in thinking about it. Exactly. No, I'm the same way where I, the thing that gets me riled up in a game is not, I don't really get mad at other players that much if they best me or use some tactic. 
a lot of people do, but I get frustrated because I think I can do better, right? And I have this perception of myself of being capable of certain things. And, you know, if I end up in a situation that I feel like I played badly and I lost, then yeah, I absolutely get upset and angry. And not at, I never really get angry at other players that much. You know, it's always like a self thing. Mm-hmm. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you one final question. I don't know that you've ever expressed an interest in having children to me, but if you were to find yourself having children, would you let them play hyper-violent video games? And at what age would you let them? Hmm. What is PUBG hyper-violent? Sure. Yeah. Okay. I absolutely would let them. The age question isn't a good question. It's kind of, you know, the way my dad always did stuff was basically like, I'll let my kids do things when they can kind of like understand and handle it. And I don't think that actually helps it be much more clear. Fourth grade seems too low. Sixth grade is like a maybe. Eighth grade is like, yeah, definitely. Kind of just depends on what I think their character is. You don't know what kind of kid you're going to have, right? And like what their character is going to be and their natural inclinations and stuff. Try as you might as a parent. It would just kind of depend on what their proclivities were and whether I thought they were ready to handle that sort of thing. So like putting an age on it is very tricky. Parents have to make that decisions for themselves. That said, you know, your kids are going to do it if they want to do it ultimately. It might be at their friend's house or at their uncle's house or who knows. So you got to kind of be open minded and moderate how they um, digest it and perceive it and help them process Because I don't think you're going to prevent kids from getting exposed to this and doing it if they want to. So it's more about being part of the process of them processing it and dealing with it than it is about keeping them away from it. Yeah, I like that answer. Being sensitive to your child's proclivities is a really important aspect. When I was a kid, I thought I was going to be a cop. I thought I was going to go into the military. And I'm talking like early grade school. And we thought the war movies with Chuck Norris and Steven Seagal were just the coolest thing we'd ever seen. And we were going to grow up to be just like those guys. And when we would say this sort of stuff in front of my dad about war and how war is so cool and how we want to go fight and kill people, blah, blah, blah. He would just say, oh, I sure hope you never go to war because war is an absolute nightmare. And I never want you to go through that. You know, he would say stuff like that, that would take the wind out of our sails really quick. He's like, all right, well, you want to go to the jungle and watch your your buddy bleed out next to you? Like, be my guest. I don't think he actually said that, but like that sort of gist. And you start to realize how fantastic your ideas of things are if you have the right voices speaking wisdom back to you. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Good good on dad, you know? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Thank you, dad. Responsible dad moment. Well, Robin, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. As always, I appreciate your thoughtful and nuanced takes. Thanks so much for having me. Stuck to have the convo and connect with you again with some microphones. So this was super fun. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Mm -hmm. Thanks, man. Mm -hmm.